the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The views and opinions expressed by Rob Black and his guests are not necessarily those of KDOW or its management owners or advertisers and should not be construed as legal tax or investment advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making any investment or financial planning decision. Insightful. Informative. Irreverent. We're ready. 1220 KDOW presents Rob Black and Your Money. Your source for breaking news, market updates, and successful investment strategies for the 21st century. Sounds like a great program. Getting you to retirement in today's market. So let's get on with the show. Taxes, family finance, insurance, the economy, technology, media, and entertainment. Rob is talking about it with you at 800-516-1220. So call in. We'll chat and uh, have some fun. Now to start your day with the latest news and market commentary. Here's Rob Black on the Bay Area's business leader, 1220 KDOW. Welcome in, Rob Black in your money. I'm Rob Black. I, like you, worry about the future. Millennials have a different idea than Generation X. Generation X has different ideas than the baby boomers, but we're all trying to get to retirement, I think, with some sort of security. Some people want to own a home. Some people want a big nest egg. And in between is probably where most people fall as far as you know what they expect their finances to contribute to their lifestyle late in life. Um, one of the things I do from time to time is take a step back and look at the big picture. I like trying to get you investing and thinking like a long-distance runner, trying to find a stride. I hate winter in large part because I cut back on my running. I do more gym activity. Uh, gym activity, I tend to look at good-looking people. Um, look at TV, look at movies. I'm not thinking big picture. I like the distance running because, again, it gets me calm and thinking about long distances. My long distance is my retirement goal line. So one of the areas that's done very well recently is housing. Stock market's crushed. Um, but housing's done okay. I, I can't you know, take it away from it. I own real estate. I own stocks. Um, I don't think that you have to own one or the other, and I don't think you have to bash the other. Over the past year, home prices have risen in roughly 246 out of 277 cities tracked uh, by a data analysis company. In two-thirds of the cities with price increases, the gains were lower than they were the year before. That slowdown reflects a softer market as investors are throttling back and first-time buyers are hit credit headwinds. Now, some of the regions and cities hit hardest by the housing bust experienced huge gains. It would be unfair to not put in perspective your returns. Like, for instance, if you only said, hey, the stock market's up 300% in the last six years, it's not fair because what happened seven years ago? Same thing with housing. Um, some cities that have some double-digit gains, Detroit, followed by most California cities, San Jose, San Francisco, Atlanta, Miami, Vegas. All these cities are different in very different reasons, right? Yet prices in most of those cities, not all of them, but most of those cities are still significantly lower than they were at the peak in 2006. And across the U.S., home prices are still 23% lower on average than they were in 2006. So during the correction, home prices fell so hard and so far that most metro areas were undervalued compared to what they would have been if they had just plugged along with a boom, without a boom or bust. Um, some areas, obviously, you wouldn't want to step into in any way, shape, or form. 
expectations are for nationwide home prices to increase about 3.5% in 2015. That's at the low end of the historical range of 3 to 5%. Now, I just said the historical range is 3 to 5%. And, you know, what I have to snap into your head at that point in time is 3 to 5% is the normal historical range. Not double digits. Stock market's at double digits when you factor in dividends in the last 100 years each year. But we also expect home uh, sales, existing home sales, to increase. So we see, you know, three and a half percent equity appreciation. Now, one of the things I, I was playing with I, at there was the historical range of three to five percent annually. What's interesting to note about that is home prices sometimes get out of control, like. Hawaii is the, or not, let's say Panama. Panama is the next Costa Rica. Costa Rica is the next toy, for whatever. And sometimes real estate, like, it's everyone's bull rushing, kind of, let's do it, follow me, who's with me? And suddenly everyone's buying real estate, and boom, 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 boom. It, it turns into this crazy. Um, some areas, you know, Cupertino and Apple said they're going to build a super massive, big, uh, office space there. It, it, it helps values. If, unless you think Apple's going to go out of business anytime soon. You know, Menlo Park, Facebook says, you know, we're going to, you know, build our campus, take over the old Sun Microsystems building, and then build even more. It helps values. Sometimes in the short term, right? But you start seeing that the housing market's tied towards something. Jobs market's obviously a smart way of starting. But also you could say the housing market sometimes could be tied towards universities where students are there and professors are there and hospitals are there. That's where my most attractive real estate is. It's near jobs and or schools. So if you can blend some of these factors in, like where you're close to Stanford, you're close to Cupertino, you're close to or you're in a good school district, you can kind of see how, wow, that housing's going to do really well. Or it's going to support itself in a, in a worst case scenario. Now, the truth of the matter is, is you have to be realistic. 3 to 5% annual appreciation, what's that tied to? Typically, it's tied towards wages. Your home isn't worth anything unless someone could afford the payment on the mortgage taking it over. Very few people are going to buy your house in cash. Yes, some people will. But very few people will buy it with cash. So you have to see wage inflation. If your home keeps going up in value, for someone to buy it from you, you're hoping that their wages are going up. Right? Are you with me at all? Now, one of the things that's going to retard people from buying homes in the future, student debt. If someone could afford $2,500 a month, for housing, but they're having more student debt than the generation before, so they could really only afford $2,000 a month. That's a lot less house they could buy. So know that housing's lovely. I was speaking with a man yesterday who owns four rental properties and the home he lives in, and I'm like, you got a lot of real estate in California. That's great. Congratulations. Now, they're all in crappy cities in California. Like, there's a big difference between Stockton, boom shakalaka laka, and Tracy, boom shakalaka laka laka, and you know, Burlingame, or San Francisco, or Menlo Park, or I'm not leaving the East Bay out for negative reasons. I'm just saying, you know, of course, they did bring it to East Bay, and Stockton's is in East Bay, I know that, uh, nor is Tracy, but they're further east than they are west. So, markets do differ. Um, keep that in mind. Even cities like Sacramento, which I love the government jobs angle, but when you drive th- to Tahoe through Sacramento, you're like, there's a lot of swamp here. There's a lot of land here that they could build on. Drive through San Francisco and tell me where you're going to build a new house. It, it, it does happen. 
Anyhow, you can find me online at robblack.com. That's robblack.com. Tweet me, Rob Black Show. YouTube me, Rob Black Show. I'm Rob Black. I was talking to my producer during the break, and we were talking a little bit about real estate, because clearly a lot of people want to talk real estate. He's got a friend who wants to, quote-unquote, buy in Reno. Um, oh, man. Keep in mind, when you go to Reno, it's a desert. But the Tesla factory is coming in, but it's still a desert. There's nothing but land there. And I get it. I just said, you know, buy near where jobs are going to be. If you've ever seen Reno 911 on TV, and I know it's a comedy, I know it's not really cops, but if you ever did see the old TV show Cops in Reno, there's a lot of dudes without shirts getting drunk in the middle of the night and hitting their ladies. And that's not necessarily a, a good formula. Now, again, I'm not intimate with the city of Reno. I go a couple times a year because I have family there. Uh, when my dad died, uh, another friend of mine, his father always invited me over for Thanksgiving back on the East Coast, so I consider him family. Um, and my producer's friend, I'll just call him Mr. X, has this thought in his head that I'll just buy there and live there for two years and then, you know, It'll appreciate fifty thousand. I'll come back to the bear and I'll I'll take that money and I'll put it into. Well, first and foremost, there's a lot smarter money out there than Mr. X. And again, people who buy in the desert, Palm Springs, hey, I look like a fool. I would never buy in Vegas. I would never buy in Reno. I would never buy in Phoenix, because again, it's a desert, and there's nothing but land. Now you can go. But, 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 but. Uh, Phoenix has got a great hospital. Vegas has got university and a hospital. I know, sometimes I'll send some conflicting thoughts. I want the higher median income cities. Um, and Phoenix, is, they're probably the best of the three of those. Would I retire in any of the three of them? Sure. I can make a case for it. But, uh, no thank you. So and again, finishing that thought is, here's a guy who's counting on well, I'm going to make $50,000 in two years when the Tesla factory opens up, and then I'm going to you know, sell, and I'm going to time it perfectly and get, get somewhere else. If ifs and buts were candy and nuts, what a party we'd have. In two years, interest rates may be higher, and if interest rates move higher, you're going to lose the ability of purchasing power. So I know this. I own a home, and I understand we're at record low mortgage rates. I wish... I could sell my home at record low mortgage rates because people would be able to afford to buy more home. Does that make any sense? As interest rates go higher, they could afford less. And people typically don't look at a house and say, oh, $1.4 million or or $300,000. They go, how much are the payments going to be? You know, that's people are payment driven. And the number one thing affecting payments, interest rates. So... I'm not discouraging this friend. I'm just telling, giving some generic advice of quit trying to be so smart. If you want to own a home, it's not a two-year proposition. Uh, and if it were, I, you're, I'm damn sure positive that you're not smarter than some of the smart money out there. 800-516-1220 calls in the air. So I think I've talked housing markets plenty enough at this point in time. Um, so 3 to 5% 
is the outlook for growth in home appreciation. And again, that's heavily tied towards interest rates, kind of have a play in there, but also just wage inflation. So as far as the outlook for the markets going forward, much is the same. The United States has seen an improving job market, and that's a good thing. Europe seems to be having some problems still. Their woes are going to create some compelling bargains. Um, I'm more interested in picking up European shares, international stocks, probably another three to nine months before I get aggressive with it, uh, because I like getting some of the risk taken out of a stock. Like, for instance, uh, at the end of 2014, oil fell apart in the United States. Or oil fell, the oil, price of oil, really for all of 2014, had a pretty rough run of it. But at the end, it had a very rough run of it. And that is aggressively hurting a lot of companies that are publicly traded tied towards oil, the price of oil. Uh, I would rather buy when there's a compelling bottom being put in, where people are panicked, than to, you know, in a worst case scenario from that point in time, it's a little less downside. So, you know, Europe's still a bit of a problem, and I kind of like that. Um, Asia has some issues, especially tied towards China, as far as their landing goes. Oil's very much so a double-edged sword, and, you know, on some of the stocks that it could hurt, it could also help a lot of stocks. Um, Companies like Walmart, TJX, uh, Target, Costco, dollar stores, all, you know, people spend their disposable. How do I, how do I once referred to it as something... Um, disposable energy income. Lower energy prices put more money in our pockets, and that's bullish. So it gives retailers a lift. Um, there's companies like Marriott who could be a winner from lower oil. I know you're saying, wait, just, oh, I get it, more people traveling. Lower airfares, lower airline costs of energy. But energy's not as obvious for the airlines because they hedge. So sometimes they, they're on the wrong side of the hedge. Now, a couple months, you know, for 2014, one of the big stories was Ebola. And Ebola hurts Marriott International. And then the Ebola story kind of goes away. And the lower energy helps a Marriott International. So you don't want to get too much caught up in story stocks or trend investing. I like trend investing more than story stocks. The oil is more of a story. Um, a lot of people expect oil to... to be lower for 2015 than 2014. You know, going into 2014, most people probably said $100 barrel of oil. Now people are saying 80 even though it was significantly lower than that. Um, but that's the way that people see things, you know, um, stabilizing. So the story stock angle is nice, but the story can change quickly. You know, like I said, Ebola became lower gasoline prices. So Marriott with Ebola, bad combination. Marriott with lower gas, good combination. So you want a little bit more than just a story. I hate Forrest Gump. I'm probably the only person in America who hated that movie. Life is like a box of chocolates. Um, That's a good story, and you tell it so well, Forrest. Um, See, stories kind of end. You have to have a little bit more gist, a little bit more guts, a little bit more to it. Uh, it's got to be strong and girthy and uh, it just can't be a story. Forest. Run, Forest, run! Okay, I, I'm not going to wish him death. I'm not going to do it. because I'm, I'm going to be 10.3% happier this year. I'm Rob Black.
I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. We can talk real estate, insurance. We can talk millennials versus Generation X, Generation X against the baby boomers. Of course, I hate the baby boomers because they're going to be taxing our system for a long period of time while not putting income taxes into it. Let's talk with Patrick O'Hare, Chief Market Analyst, Briefing.com. Mr. O'Hare, how are you? Hey, Rob. Doing fine, thanks. Good to be back with you. Good. I'm trying to talk a little trend investing today. Um, anything you want to talk about with trends? Uh, very broad, open topic with you. Yeah, you know, I mean, trends can certainly uh, work in your favor, but like anything else with a trend, uh, you better, you know, have your timing right. So, um, you know, we've seen this, this stock market anyway, seems to really embrace certain trading trends and, and lets them ride for an extended period of time. And when you have low interest rates and low, you know, periods of low volatility, uh, it, it can, you know, lead to some successful trend trading, trend investing. Uh, but would caution listeners that based on the experience of recent years, it could also lull one into a false sense of security that you're going to continue to see that those easy money trades in some of those trends, um, you know, when the interest rate environment changes um, or, or you know, you simply get a, you know, broader corrective move, which this market is certainly overdue for. Um, but, you know, when you're when you're into trend activities, you need to stay on top of things. You know, it's not like something you can just uh, buy and put away and, and ignore it because it will shift on you in a hurry these days. One of the bigger stories of 2014 has to be commodities. Uh, were we in a commodity super cycle? Is the trend going to you know cons- uh, persist and keep energy prices lower, metals prices lower, grains prices lower? Uh, what do you think about the commodity plays or just the commodity effects on the market in the next few years? Sure. Well, I think it is fair to say that we did uh, have a commodity super cycle that uh, coincided with the, you know, um, with the increased growth rates in China as that urbanization effort uh, continued. Uh, it still continues today, but we're clearly seeing a, a slowdown in the rate of growth there, and therefore the demand for commodities is not as great as it once was. Um, but with respect to what we've seen unfold in the commodity complex, um, I think that um, you know there's a tendency to uh, look at the, the plunge in oil prices uh, exclusively. It seems to be like all we, we generally talk about these days is how far oil prices have come down, and you know, and that that's a negative for the for the oil companies, and and it is. Um, but we need to take into account too that. You've seen a drop in a number of commodity prices. You know, copper futures are down 15% year to date. Cotton futures down 30% year to date. Uh, lumber futures down 9% year to date. And I, I point to those in particular because those are uh, major inputs for a lot of companies uh, in terms of their cost of production. And as those input prices come down, uh, that's ultimately you know a positive thing for profit margins for a number of uh, of companies. And, and that should be reflected in their earnings growth in, in coming periods. And at the same time, it should hopefully translate into some uh, lower or more attractive pricing anyway for, for end users of the products that they, they produce. Um, so it's not necessarily a, a bad thing, but for you know, pure play commodity companies um, uh, that harvest those you know, items, um, you know, it is going to be a negative on those. And so you just need to be selective and, and be conscientious about um, those price declines when you're looking to, you know, um, to invest or to trade around those uh, declines. Um, but I would say one thing, you know, from the investment standpoint, um, you know, when you get these low prices because it's driven by a lack of demand and excess supply, um, those low prices will stimulate demand. And hopefully that supply-demand imbalance will come back uh, into a more uh, equitable position, and that should ultimately lead to better things for these commodity producers. And so you might have an opportunity here anyway to start scaling into some of these names uh, from a, a long-term investment standpoint. Um, but we wouldn't uh, dive into them just yet because there probably is more to go, particularly if the dollar continues to stay uh, strong uh, uh, and keeps rising like it has been this year. Seems like we have a couple things in 2015 that could play out uh, dramatically. It looks like Russia's in trouble with the falling oil. Their economy—I'm not going to say collapse—but they're now looking at a recession, and that could play out positively because a lot of bad news is already priced in. On the other hand, 
Fed Chairman Janet Yellen could start raising interest rates if the U.S. economy continues to percolate nicely. And that could play out negatively, even though the good news is job growth, but the cost of borrowing might change investor psychology. Um, you want to address maybe how these two, you know, they're currently built in one way, but they could totally flip another way. Yeah, you know, I mean, you know, Russia's a wild card, really. I mean, you, you, you have to take, I guess, allow for the possibility that there could be a negative outcome as well, you know, given how okay. dependent the economy is on those uh, on oil prices. And if you get, you know, a leader uh, like Putin who feels uh, his position is, is you know, threatened uh, by outside influences, you know, who knows? Maybe he does something, you know, rash that uh, really tries to upset the geopolitical order uh, just to uh, kind of to make some waves. Um, you know, the Russian economy clearly needs um, uh, oil prices to, to pick up. Uh, and, you know, probably um, when you look at their uh, natural gas supplies they offer to, to you know, to Europe, um, the possibility that they could, you know, clamp those down uh, during the winter months uh, is there. But we think it's, it's probably the least likely possibility because they need that revenue. Um, but I think it could kind of just be that sort of that card that hangs over everything here. You know, uh, Putin knows he sort of controls some of those purse strings and can kind of call attention uh, every now and then when he wants to by making some noise of a you know negative variety. So, um, so Russia is still pretty much a wild card in my estimation, but needs to be accounted for in both a negative and potentially positive light. Um, with respect to raising interest rates. You know, we talked not that long ago uh, about how we've seen commodity prices come down, and, and frankly, I'm, st- I'm struggling to see, you know, how the Fed could um, raise interest rates anytime soon, you know, given that it has a dual mandate, unlike the ECB, which has just the single inflation mandate. You know, we are seeing, you know, uh, steady job growth, which is certainly a good thing, uh, but there's still, you know, slack out there in the in the labor pool. I think we see that in just how elevated the uh, long-term unemployed continues to be. Uh, as a percentage of the unemployed workers, and uh, at the same time, um, you know, inflation rates aren't likely to be moving higher here, uh, certainly in the near term, as we see the flow-through effect of these, uh, you know, dropping commodity prices. And so, I think the, the Fed is still going to want to be uh, of that mindset, where they'd rather uh, err on the side of by doing nothing, because the risk of doing something prematurely is greater than, um, in their estimation, we think anyway. Uh, of doing something um, to raise interest rates, you know, sooner rather than later. Anything else that you're working on, Mr. O'Hare? Anything that you want to throw, add extra insight on? Heck, if you want to grade the stock market, anything that you want to spout out about right now? It's your time. Yeah, you know, we're in that period. We uh, obviously, with all the holiday selling activity, you're hearing a lot of you know reports out there about whether you know it was good or it was disappointing, you know, and. And I just I'm kind of loath to listen to any of it, uh, and I would say I think your listeners should be too. Um, it's just there's so much noise about just you know how strong holiday sales could be. Uh, you know you have reputable companies coming out with different uh, you know growth rates uh, today. You know we saw Adobe Systems with their tracking technology say Cyber Monday sales were up 16%. According to IBM, they were only up 8%. Um, I guess the, the silver lining in that is that both uh, tracking systems said they were up, but you just don't know how strong they were. And I think you just need, you know, you got to let some of the dust settle here and wait till we get further into the, in, closer to the Christmas period to, uh, and then even on the other side of it, frankly, to to really uh, understand just how sales activity continued this holiday. So be careful about listening to some of these early reports. Um, and then I would also just add one other thing. You know, we have the ECB meeting here coming up on Thursday. That's going to be a focal point for the market, uh, as everybody seems to be waiting to hear some sort of. QE announcement, or certainly the jawboning that one is on the way, um, and that could create some volatility in the currency markets uh, as well as the stock markets, depending on what uh, Mario Draghi says. Thanks for your help. It is Patrick O'Hare, Chief Market Analyst, Briefing.com. Uh, briefing.com is a website that I start my financial media preparation for daily. It's independent, live market analysis, U.S. international. Equity markets, uh, there's so much there from technicals to you know, story stocks to earnings calendars. Uh, it's, I'd say it's a pretty good one, one-stop destination. 
800-516-1220. To get your calls on the air, it's 800-516-1220. And you can find them at briefing.com. You want to drop me an email, it's rob at robblack.com. One of the areas that we talked about there was trend investing. And, you know, we were in a uh, commodity super cycle, and now you're seeing, you know, record flows out of commodity funds. I tend not to like to lean to the point that I can get caught. <clears throat> I'd rather play good, solid investing, diversification. I think that's one of the number one ways to not get freaked out is if you put a little bit into small caps, growth and value, a little bit into mid cap, growth and value, a little bit into large cap, growth and value, a little bit into emerging markets, a little bit into some sort of income like a good refund. I think they'll work for you over time. And some quarters will be better on one sector or the other style. And that takes some of the risk out for you of leaning and get caught leaning. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. You can find me online at robblack.com. That's robblack.com. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. One of the trends that is still very much so out there and has a play on investments is much of the world is still living in the dark ages. There is a lot of development to happen, a lot of humanity to emerge. Um, But racism remains... Big, big problem in Europe. More than 20% of the French said they would not have want someone from another race to be their neighbor. Um, you know, whether it be homosexuals or Jews or Moldavians or Hungarians or Romas, there's a lot of racism in the world. And France is considered to be a developed country, right? Um, another trend out there and again, if you just take a look at, you know, Canada doesn't have the death penalty. The United States does for about 40 crimes. Um, some countries have the death penalty for, you know, crimes during wartime. You can see the world has a long way to go. And it's still a pretty big world, all things considered. Other thoughts of note as far as living in the Dark Ages is the world farming, global farming, has never been more volatile. And we are a lot of people who don't necessarily get along with each other. A political dispute between Russia and Belarus you know, broke up the long-standing global potash cartel, causing prices to crater. Optimists say that every class of potash industry, you know, since having potash break down sent the stock of several fertilizer producers down by 25%. Now, what's bad for the fertilizer producers is great news for U.S. farmers. The agriculture industry has tremendous capacity to adapt to new conditions, including warming climate. Crops can be planted earlier. New varieties that are much more resistant to climate stress can be developed. But experts say that the research needed to make all this happen is kind of getting short shrift right now. So we kind of see, like, wow, three years of drought in California, and you know, neighbors of mine are now starting to plant drought-resistant plants. It took three years to do that. Um, people are now starting to say, well, you should have a, a nozzle on your hose when you wash your car. Why did, it take, why did it take all that time to figure out, like, sitting it down the drain is a bad idea? Um, so farming has to kind of adapt, and that'll be a trend for the next 20 years. 
Um, global farming, you know, if you just take a look at commodity prices on wheat, corn, soybeans, and cotton um, in the last 10 years, it's been a roller coaster ride. You know, down, up, down, up, down. And that's just in a 10-year period. So when you're a farmer and you're planting wheat and, uh, you know, you're getting, what, $14 a bushel, and the next year you're getting $12 a bushel, and two years ago you were getting $8 a bushel. So it goes from super low to super high to super to low, not super low, but very volatile, very tough for farming to figure this out. So climate change could definitively destabilize the world's food system. That could lead to rising hunger. It could lead to mass starvation. So another big uh, trend for the next few years, you know, will be water wars. It's not something that we think of because we have so much, you know, hey, go turn on the water, right? Uh, let's take a 10-minute shower. Let's use three towels. I heard some statistic, and I don't know if this is true. But for every glass of water you order at a restaurant, it takes eight glasses of water. So by leaving one, you're leaving eight behind. So restaurants should get to the point of, do you want water or not? Don't give it to everybody. Because you have to clean that cup. Um, I don't know if that's a real statistic or not, but heck. It's just saying it makes it true, right? Every continent on the planet currently has a region that's facing water shortages of varying degrees. Interesting to note. Every single continent. Every single you know, massive land mass. Um, little no water scarcity, eh, good 60% of the planet. Economic water scarcity, where they'll kill each other for water, mostly in Africa, but some parts of, of Southeast Asia. Another trend for the next 20 years, and this is why you have to consider a security stock, is we live in a hacker world. Major hack attacks have originated from everywhere, including the United States. Major systems must assume hacking attempts at all time. You know, most of the hacking at this point in time is coming out of China. About 16% of it. Well, that's not true. About 22% from the United States. So, Russia's got a very small system, all things considered. But cybercrime is going to be something you hear again and again and again and again. Malware, vulnerabilities, hacking. Corporations will lose big contracts. Corporations will land big contracts due to security. Android hacks have surged. One of the things I like about the Apple phone is, all things considered, they have a pretty closed system. Now, Macs aren't going to be immune. About 300 new Mac-specific malwares were created just in third quarter uh, of 2014. So, not totally immune. You must protect your data. On an individual level, and a corporate level, that is a trend that is not going to go away. As an investment, it's pretty easy to find some ideas. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. You can find me online at robblack.com. That's robblack.com. The views and opinions expressed by Rob Black and his guests are not necessarily those of the Wall Street Business Network, this station, its management, owners, or advertisers, and should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making any investment or financial planning decision. 
Insightful. Informative. Irreverent. We're ready. The Wall Street Business Network presents Rob Black and Your Money, your source for breaking news, market updates, and successful investment strategies for the 21st century. Sounds like a great program. Getting you to retirement in today's market. So let's get on with the show. Taxes, family finances, insurance, the economy, technology, media, and entertainment. Rob is talking about it with you at 800-516-1220. So call in. We'll chat and uh, have some fun. Now, today with the latest news and market commentary, here's Rob Black on the Wall Street Business Network. I'm Rob Black, talking money, investing, and more. Anything you want to talk about, we can talk about. Trend investing, health insurance. Pick up the phone, give me a call, 800-516-1220. It's 800-516-1220. I'm not doing this show for my health. Um, quite honestly, I'm looking forward to a day of sleeping in. Uh, when I retire, and this will be my last radio job, I will sleep in. And I will not ever break that. It's interesting to you know say that out loud. In large part because that's all I know about my retirement <laughs> is that I want to sleep in. I know that I can spend a pretty penny. I know that I've got expensive tastes. Um, so I, I have to you know, prepare for that. 800-516-1220 to get your calls on the air. It's 800-516-1220. When I was 18 years old, I did the math and I decided I wanted to retire at age 35. I wanted to have a million dollars because at age 18, I thought $40,000 was a lot of money. And that I could definitely live on the beach with my sugar booger selling oranges. And, you know, selling oranges in the day and making love at night and selling oranges in the day. Like, really? Then as you get older, you get married, you divorce, you... Uh, some people have kids, some people don't have kids, some people have, you know, like, I want to get a trailer, I want to get an RV. Like, their goals change. So, $1 million kicking off $40,000, not enough for me anymore. A million dollars will kick off $40,000 a year, each year till the day you die. If you do it correctly, you're pulling about 4% out, you're getting about 7 to 10% returns, you've got some money, you know, liquid. You rebalance on a regular basis. Um, I think where I'm going at with this is that, where am I going at with this? Oh, you, we're all going to retire at some point, and you should have a number in your head of how much you want, and be willing to change it. Um, one of the things I like talking about are some of the, you know, the bigger trends. And one of the bigger trends out there is... Japan's having problems. Japan has a society that has inflation, and the wage inflation is not keeping up with it. Assuming, you know, that things stay as they are, Japan's not a big helper to the world. And one of the big problems, and this is another global trend, is immigration is not popular with anyone, with any country. Every country seems to have a problem. Every big developed country seems to have a problem with it. Europe recently, you know, we've got to watch this immigration issue, especially in the European Union, because some people will leave poor country for wealthier country and try to get the immigration benefits from, you know, the wealthier country. Um, immigration is important because it brings workers to your economy, and usually fairly young workers, and fairly young workers, if they're taxed, help the system work. Now, you know, illegal immigrants who everyone has the story about, oh, did you hear about that guy who was an illegal an illegal immigrant in the United States who went to the hospital for I don't know. He broke his arm and ran up twenty thousand dollars in bills and never paid him. We all hear those stories, but we forget about how many jobs are out there that I don't want to do that other people will do. Uh, is it Mike Rowe, the guy with dirty jobs? There's jobs I wouldn't want. Even if you paid me a lot of money, I wouldn't want. Um, 
So, and there's jobs that other people will do. So, one of the other trends that's going to be happening in the world for the next 10, 20 years is we have it pretty stable here in the United States. Yeah, we did elect uh, President Barack Obama on this whole change, and we're going to work together, and everything's going to be great. And it was kind of a hot election, all things considered. Uh, it was very passionate. Not sexy, but passionate. Um, but a lot of the world has elections that are downright insane. Turkey, India, Indonesia, South Africa, Brazil. Turkey had a massive corruption scandal. So municipal elections um, have the power to radically change economies. And Turkey, obviously, a potential ally in the fight against ISIS. If their policy leaders want us there, or want to help, or want to fight, or maybe they want to support somebody else. Uh, Brazil, a country that is just wonderful to visit. But they've got dwindling, dwindling surpluses. And you could go back to Brazil, Russia, India, and China, BRIC nations. It hasn't really turned out terribly well for that play. I'd say India and China turned out the best. Um, and a lot of politicians will promise, but just not be able to deliver on those promises. Inflation remains stubbornly high in India. Current account deficit is yawning. Uh, there's been domestic problems tied towards economic slowdown. Trying to overcome bottlenecks as an economy. Um, the stock market in India is not terribly well trusted. So elections are a big story and a big trend. Indonesia is one of the hot, sexy countries on the up right now. Yet it has a currency crisis. Their stocks have been extremely volatile. Streets have been filled with protesters and riots. So Indonesia needs subsidy reform, but major moves are unlikely ahead of their elections. So a lot of election issues tied towards Wall Street. So don't tell me politics don't mean anything and that you shouldn't vote. Um, I told you recently I was reading an article, and it was out of New York, I think New York Times, but ultimately it said Obama's administration made a, a massive mistake. That when he first got into office, instead of focusing on health care, he should have focused on the economy. Um, and then his legacy might have been a little bit more positive. He could have pulled off two birds during his term, or his terms. Uh, two big, big issues. But ultimately, health care has been fragmented. When he introduced the idea, he, you know, it was flawed, and it's going to get challenged in courts. He had a grand idea, but other Democrats had grand ideas, too, of what they want added and, and not added. And everyone, he had a chance for them to all work together with a Democratic-controlled Congress, and they failed to do so. Thus, not destroying his legacy, but tinting it. Tainting it. Tinting, taint, taint, taint. Um, anyway. The world's... So politics does have, obviously, a huge play on Wall Street. The world is finding alternatives to oil. And that's a trend for the next 10, 20 years as well. And it's not just the electric cars or the hybrids. So... Demand curves will start to bend backwards in the future on oil. Fascinating. I'm Rob Black, talking money, investing, and more.
I'm Rob Black, talking money, investing, and more. Anything you want to talk about, we can talk about. Drop me an email, rob at robblack.com. It's rob at robblack.com. I do a show, really, that I'd like to maybe incorrectly say is dedicated to getting you to retirement. It's a lot of my therapy. Um, It relaxes me. It calms me. It saves me a lot in therapist bills. But it also is about helping me get to retirement and helping me understand how to help you get to retirement. It's about stopping people from making massive mistakes with their money. I think there's nothing worse than losing money. I'm not a big gambler for that that reason. I don't care if you're a bikini go-go dancer or if you're a high-end Wall Street hedge fund manager or if you're a stay-at-home mom, or if you're you know, an entrepreneur who starts up companies. We all work hard for our money. And cutting down the mistakes is really important. One of the things I've been talking a lot about are trends in investing. Whether it's things like racism is still a massive problem for the world, and you're like, how's that a trend? As we develop, as we focus on issues, we'll become more enlightened people, and as that happens, we'll follow careers and education, uh, be less phobic, be more open-minded, open, you know, uh, travel industries, open a lot of businesses. So I'm pro, pro, you know, grasping the bigger picture and cutting down on mistakes. So one of the other trends that, you know, I could throw out there, and I think we saw this pretty aggressively, is OPEC got torn apart. OPEC countries really need high oil prices to function well. Major oil producing countries are dependent on high oil prices continuing in order to provide the necessary revenue to balance their government budgets. You know, the break-even levels required for oil prices for Iraq, Iran, Saudi, and Russia, they're all very different. So... Um, so what am I throwing out there for you the shale world has kind of been delayed a little bit there's been an enormous amount of shale uh, substantial shale deposits found in China in Libya Argentina all across the United States and Alaska into Canada massive amounts and when oil's at, you know, 60 bucks a barrel, shell's not going to be as, as sexy. We'll say, you know what, we'll look at that light, sweet crude. But they kind of supply and demand each other. You know, the Netherlands will suspend their, you know, shale gas drilling uh, much earlier than, say, the United States will. Because of the amount of money it costs for them to pull it out. Whereas Russia can't afford to stop. They'll take whatever they can get. So natural gas substitutions, everything from vehicle efficiency gains, from things like electric cars and hybrids, I mentioned that the global oil demand curve will start to bend sharply backwards, um, basically the year 2020. So of course there will be some business as usual, but after you start taking out the vehicle efficiency gains and gas substitution, you'll see that curve, and that, that's not good oil investments. Again, it's not bad. It's just not as friendly of an operating environment. In oil, year-over-year supplies climbed by nearly a million barrels a day in the month of November recently, uh, driven by North America's shale boom. So, uh, Iran, Iraq, Angola increased production. So the OPEC family getting torn apart. And OPEC is kind of interesting to me because the Iranians are sniffing at the Iraqis. Iran is pushing for publicly for Iraq to throttle back, accusing Baghdad of stealing its customers while it's under sanctions. Saudis are angry at everyone, having just announced you know, that they would no longer serve as swing producers to balance quotas. If the United States, if Intel were to say, you know what, we're going to become a cartel, we could make 100 million semiconductors a year, but we're only going to make 3 million the prices of a semiconductor would go through the roof. 
and governments around the world would be outraged. And it's just a really crappy example, but um, you get what I'm trying to do with that. I don't like cartels. And I'm thrilled that, for now, OPEC is being broken. Could they get back together and pull it off? Sure. One of the trends that's going to affect the next 20, 25 years, and this is in the United States all, but particularly in Europe. Europe has ruined its youth. Nearly one in four Europeans aged under 25 are unemployed. Uh, and if you go outside, you know, or if you stay inside just the core 17 countries, it's even higher. And this is a number that's gone from 15% unemployment just seven, eight years ago to 25%. It's been steadily climbing. Oftentimes, I'll say on this show, I was lucky to be born a white guy to a family that lived on the coast, to a family that expected him to go to college and had the resources to fund that. Spaniards, I'm lucky. I feel lucky I wasn't born a Spaniard. I may be more suave with the ladies, but no thank you. A lot of Spaniards have given up. They're reverting to the kind of unskilled farm work they used to shun. You could find young Spanish people picking up fruit or picking olives. Um, artificially high because you can't or won't immigrate for work. Young Greeks have a real bad youth unemployment rate. has stabilized. It's above 50%. In 2012, deaths in Greece outnumber births by 16,000. The country only has 11 million people. People don't want to make babies and be born into 50% unemployment. And if you don't have babies, what's, what are you going to do? You have sluggish growth. You've got a rigid labor market. You've got a mismatch of skills. Schools continue to train students for jobs that no longer exist. You know, there's perceptions of work. Um, Europe's messed up. And the European youth is really messed up. And what's actually kind of funny is no one respects the EU. Um, no one respects the EU, but it's better than the alternatives. You know, what has started as the process of integration transformation actually has been reversed. It's a process now of disintegration. And instead of convergence of living standards, now divergence. Anyway, these big trends going to continue to play out. And you want to be involved on the right side of investing? Keep listening to the show. I'll try to educate you as best I can. You can find me online at robblack.com. That's robblack.com. Old people are something that I talk about on a regular basis. And I try to do it in an entertaining way so that you understand that I mean, it's not silly. But it's a big problem in the world, and it's going to continue to be a problem tax the systems of world economies. Between 1950 and 1990, the world median age climbed 2% to 24, from 23.5. Then it climbed 18% to 28.5. That's a pretty big ramp up. This could be a bigger problem for some countries than others. The proportion of elderly to working age by region. Eastern Europe's got it the worst. Um, Africa probably has it the best. But it continues to trend higher. And the reason I bring this up is we all know that older people tend to, yes, they spend money. But like in the state of California, there's Prop 13 that you know they can hide behind and keep their tax bills low, which is great. If, you know, I get it. It's a predictable source of you know, taxable income tied towards real estate values. It's a little bit silly that we're not all on the same tax rate, but uh, that's okay. Um, it taxes the system. So... Close to three out of every 20 euros of GDP now go to cash benefits for the elderly. That will only continue to climb. 
how much money goes to Social Security, um, Medicare, Medicaid, Medi-Cal, and other benefits that have been overpromised to retirees around the world. It's going to be a problem for Asia. It's not just Japan who's got an aging population. Japan's economy has been just a mess for 20 years, 25 years. By 2050, pension costs will grow more than 5% in Korea, more than 2% in China and in Indonesia. Healthcare costs will grow at least 6% across the region. Percentage of healthcare spending is percentage of GDP. In Japan, over the next 30 years, it's going to go from 6% to 12.5%. In South Korea, it's going to go from 3% to almost 11%. In China, it's going to go from 2% to almost 8.3%. So those are some pretty big costs. Do we need some sort of like super flu to take out the elderly? It would help. Is that a funny thing to say on radio? Probably not the coolest, but it would help. China's even has problems with the elderly. It's not just a U.S. problem. It's not just a European problem. It's a world problem. And if the elderly were out there inventing new types of semiconductors at age 70, that would be great, but they're not. Another big trend over the next 10, 20, 30 years will be Australia. Uh, there's less robust demand from China, and because that they're a commodity-driven economy, um, that's going to be a problem for Australia. Australia's demographics, the sweet spot, is behind them. They can no longer depend on rising terms of trade and favorable demographics to make them richer. So... I feel some economies have peaked. Does that mean the beginning of the end? No. I think China will continue to open up, which will be a new standard for their local leaders. We've seen some achievements in protecting the environment and controlling debt levels. Uh, China has to be careful not to cut corners. So, uh, something the United States has done, like for instance, in California, Jerry Brown took from local municipalities, local cities, to pay for some of the debt obligations of California, leaving the local municipalities in a situation where they have to raise rates on taxes, do bond initiatives, or do something to continue to fund their schools. So, pretty big trend there. of cut, Be careful cutting corners, because you're still you know, coming up with a shortfall somewhere in there. The more interesting countries in the next decade for me. Um, probably the most interesting country, believe it or not, is Mexico. It's expected to double their growth next year. They've got low wages. They've got market access. They've become a major hub for auto manufacturers. Nissan's opening up a $2 billion assembly complex. Manufacturers such as Mazda, Honda, and Audi are racing to set up factories. Uh, General Motors is set to invest another $700 million. Mexico is partially denationalizing its energy sector, and you know estimates are that the nation could lower as much as $20 billion in new investment. Indonesia is pretty interesting. They're going to allow foreign investments to the marine and airports. Nigeria, intriguing. Africa is booming right now. Former Barley Clay's chief, Bob Diamond, was in Nigeria recently. Scouting out banks to snatch up for Africa-centric fund. I do like uh, banks in the United States next year, even with a higher interest rate potential environment. So Brazil, Russia, India, and China is something we talked about 10 years ago, 20 years ago. It wasn't coined that until probably about 15 years ago, but uh, the only I, I like India and China. You can find me online at robblack.com. It's robblack.com. Twitter, Rob Black Show, YouTube, Rob Black Show. Thanks for listening to the show. Send me feedback, Rob at robblackshow.com. It's Rob at robblackshow.com. Talk to you soon.
views and opinions expressed by Rob Black and his guests are not necessarily those of the Wall Street Business Network, this station, its management, owners, or advertisers, and should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making any investment or financial planning decision. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.